I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Every doctor needs a baker to bake his bread. Every baker enjoys the occasional movie. When the filmmaker's car breaks down, he visits the mechanic. And when the mechanic breaks down, he visits the doctor. This is the story of the modern world, civilized society. But the thing is, each character in this story envies the other a little. The mechanic wishes he could bake cakes. The filmmaker disappointed his mother because he never became a doctor. True story. And the doctor? He was always, deep inside, an inspired artist. It's seldom that someone manages to enjoy both worlds, maintaining a flourishing career on one hand and making a living from his passion or hobby on the other. But such is the case with Dr. Ido Netanyahu. Dr. Netanyahu is the third and youngest son of Tzila and Professor Ben Sion Netanyahu, brother of the belated Yoni Netanyahu, hero of Entebbe, and of the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. He grew up between Israel and America, joined the army, served as Netanyahu's tentu in the elite Sayeret Matkal unit, and then studied medicine and became a doctor of medicine. In parallel, he's been maintaining another career as a writer. He's authored several books that have been translated into many languages, and in recent years, he's published several plays, which have showcased around the world. We're proud and excited to have Dr. Ido Netanyahu on the show with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thanks. I'm fine. Thanks for having me here. Are you the uh, filmmaker that was supposed to be a doctor? No, I think that's him. Oh, that's you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're, we were all supposed to be doctors. But... You, didn't, you didn't miss anything. That's fine. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Except... can assure you. How does the uh, how does a radiologist, an ex-commando, come to write plays? I mean, you wouldn't assume that kind of path. Well, first of all, how did I become a writer? Before I wrote books and stories, before I wrote plays, I sort of uh, gravitated towards plays maybe 12 years ago. How did I become a writer? It really had to do with the death of Yoni at Entebbe. And, uh, how old were you? I was 24. He was 30 when he died. He was lieutenant colonel and commanded the uh, uh, rescue force of his unit of Seyrat Matkal in that famous operation in 1976 where Israel rescued uh, more than 100 hostages from the middle of Africa. And uh, after his death, as you know, I was at the end of my third year of medical school and I thought, uh, I'm going to take a year off and think about what should I do with my life. Uh, I wasn't sure I'd go back to medicine, but I did. Eventually, I did. And during that year, you sort of, you know, think about uh, what is the purpose of your life. And it's, uh, I think, common among people who have lost uh, relatives in similar circumstances. And at some point, I started writing. And what I wrote about is something that happened to me after the Yom Kippur War. I finished my military service in the summer of 73. I went actually to study in Cornell University because it was free. My father was a professor there. Timing is everything. Huh? I guess so, yes. And uh, But a few weeks later, the war broke out, so I returned to Israel. I remember that uh, my brother called me from New York, Bibi, was also a student there at MIT. And Eud Barak, our former commander of the unit, was a student in Stanford. And they met each other at the airport, about to fly to Israel. 
And Eud Barak calls me and says, listen, Ido, the war, by the time you return, the war will be over. So really just stay there and don't return. Well, I, I took the next flight to Israel. So. <laughs> uh, he wasn't that good in assessments even back then, I, I guess. He actually apologized. <laughs> Believe it or not, I remember after the war, I met him and he said, listen, Ido, I really want to apologize for saying something that's not right. Wow. So, and I actually appreciated it. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, in any case. All three of you, you were... In- American universities were well, overseas. He was in Stanford, you were in yeah, yeah. Cornell, and uh, Bibi was in MIT. He was in Stanford. I remember helping him write his application to Stanford because I knew English better than he did uh-huh. when he was the commander of the unit. And uh, he sat in his office and sort of corrected the English or rewrote the English or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, he was accepted to uh, to Stanford. I didn't, did his MA there, I think. And I know this is childish, but... It, it just brings to mind the kind of the superhero movies where like all of a sudden something happens and then they call in all the superheroes and they the Ghostbusters they, they each come from like I mean he was uh, you know what I'll tell you a story <laughs> about that that's that's absolutely uh, true I fly on the plane I get out of the plane I take my bag I go to the bathroom at the Lod Airport and in the bag that I brought with me from America okay as a student in Cornell I had my army uniform. And I had my paratrooper boots. And, you know, I got out of, I get out of the bathroom like Superman, you know, changing his clothes or something in the telephone booth. And this guy was with me in the flight said, what, they arranged for you guys? Uniform ready here at the airport? And I said, no, 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 I, I brought it with me. And, of course, he didn't believe me. But you think, why, why, you know, I was 21 years old. Why did I take my uniform with me to America, to Cornell? That's weird. And what you say now that's probably the reason right because i think i was thinking okay if something happens you know i get a phone call or find out that something's really big is happening yeah in the unit some great operation well i want to get to the unit as quickly as possible well how will i get from the airport to the unit to the base at that time the only way to get from one place to another for a soldier was to hitchhike and so I'll need my clothes. I need my uniform in order to hitchhike. And I think that's what happened. So, because in know. Israel, if you're in uniform, it's easier for you well, to... Well, during the war, it was instantaneous. I yeah. mean, you know, you just, yeah, you raise the thumb and everybody stopped. So you were saying about uh, right. the Yom Kippur. So the Yom Kippur. So after the war, uh, we're called up to... Uh, I myself was with some other soldiers. Uh, it was a, the beginning of a very harsh winter. And we had captured the peak of the Hermon Mountain in the Yom Kippur War. It's very high. It's close to 3,000 meters. And a group of paratroopers were stranded there in the snow. They tried to make their way down. They didn't succeed. They lost their way. They managed to make it up back to the top, to a cave that they had there. And we were called up to go up, walk up, and bring them down, show their way down, because we had experience navigating in snow and, uh, and, you know, and being in those elements. So we started walking, and uh, actually there wasn't snow, there was rain, it was very severe weather, it was very harsh, elements were really tough. And we got, because we had snow clothes, we got all wet. I think also the height itself, the level of oxygen, we weren't used to those heights. And one of us had a hard time, and not too far away from the peak, he actually died, he froze to death. And this is something that sort of obviously remained with me. And then that was the thing that a few years later, I wrote a short story about. That incident. That incident. But you must have seen death before during your service. 
I mean, what was different about this one? Not, not so much, believe it or not. Uh -huh. uh, not, not so much. Uh, I think other soldiers had a much harder time, uh, whether those who were in the Armored Corps, or even the paratroopers or Golani, uh, had uh, went through a more difficult war than we did or I did mm -hmm. in Seyret Matkal. But, uh, but that one sticks. Well, you're sort of there, and he's dying in front of your eyes. And in vain, because, you know, it, it, it's That's not like he died in battle. Or in vain, because it turns out, actually, they did not need a rescue. Uh, his name was Shai Shacham. He's a kibbutznik, or uh, was a kibbutznik from Kabri, from the north. So that brought me to write my first story. I, when I finished writing it, uh, obviously, I had a need to write it. I showed it to a friend of my parents that I appreciated his opinion, and he had a lot of comments. But he also urged me or encouraged me to continue with this, and that's how I started my writing career. And that, So that was your first story? What was it about? Well, that, that was the story. It was that, about that, the, that, the that actual event. Yeah, it's, called, it's called The Rescuers. And uh, I guess it's a story about doing something in vain, as you, as you say here. And, uh, and that's it. I started writing short stories, and I published and I wrote the books, and uh, eventually I sort of gravitated to playwriting. Yeah, and, and the first like big book was the one about Tioni, or there was some. Uh, no, it was uh, a, the book of short stories. The book of short stories. Yeah, and then you did uh, you write the story about the book about Yoni, which is by uh, it's like a, more of a historic book. Yes, less prose. Yeah. It's a uh, yes. Well, yeah, it's a sort of. Uh, it's not a novel. It's a historical book. It's a documentary book. It's about what happened at Entebbe from the point of view of the unit that my brother led. Um, there was a lot of misinformation, still is, about Entebbe, what actually happened there, uh, to such an extent that the uh, military history division report is sheer nonsense. I mean, there's probably hardly a, a single statement there that's correct, and I felt there was a need to research what happened, first of all, to get people talking on tape uh, to actually say what happened. This was a few years after the operation, and eventually I published a book uh, uh, called Yoni's Last Battle. And then I wrote a novel, sort of a satirical, social-political novel about Israel called Ita Malkei. And in that novel, sort of, I, uh, I enjoyed writing the dialogues. So I think that's what brought me to... Uh, to playwriting. To playwriting, yeah, after that, yes. So I, I read, um, I actually just finished, as I was telling you before the, uh, the show, the, a, happy end, a Happy End. Yeah today um in hebrew happy end okay happy end <laughs> right so samach no happy end that's all they call it in uh, happy oh, okay. end. <laughs> yep. um and it's uh it, it it kind of made me think of your father because your father was a historian tell, tell the audience what uh, it's about the, the happy end uh, a happy end the play is um uh, revolves around mark who's a professor uh of physics in a university in berlin is it the university of berlin who knows? I don't know. Whatever ah, okay. it is, I invented it. I, I but see. I think, yeah. It's no, but I, wasn't, I didn't remember. I think it was. it's called the University of Berlin, yeah. Okay. Or at so least at was, that time it was called that. He's a professor of physics, and uh, it takes place around 1932, 1933. Um, and his wife is, uh, the, the characters are him, his wife, his assistant professor, and his assistant, and their son, who's a poet. And I don't want to urge people to read it. I don't want to ruin it. But basically, it revolves around them considering whether or not to leave Germany as yeah. the Nazis take power. Uh, but there's a lot of, it feels to me like there's a lot of, uh, 
it goes deeper than just the story of a family in Germany at the rise of the Nazi party. It seems to me like there's some kind of commentary there, and I want I was I wanted to hear yeah. your input on this mm-hmm. uh, about Jews in the diaspora and kind of. It seems like almost maybe a criticism of of the Jews in the diaspora at that time. Criticism to the fact that Jews are blind to what's happening around them. I don't know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> No, it's it's always it's not only a Jewish trait though. The the play actually yeah it takes place pre Holocaust, but it's really a play about today. You know how do we, or about any time, how do we understand the reality that's around us? Uh, to what extent are we influenced by our psychological needs? And to what extent can we really use sort of cold analytical judgment to determine what's going on? It's very hard. It's very difficult. Now, I use the Holocaust, the theme of the Holocaust, only because everybody knows what will happen if that family decides to stay and not go to America, where he was invited to be a professor. The audience knows that they have to leave, but they don't know it. And the trick was here, even with the audience knowing that, how to make the audience understand how difficult it is really for them to make the right decision, because they're so uh, enmeshed in their lives and they're, they they look at what's happening and they don't want to admit what's happening and so they they use analytical means and the professor is very smart and his arguments are very forceful and very make a lot of sense but they're wrong so yeah that's the play is really about uh, how how do how do we know did did they show it in germany There was a several readings in Germany, not yet I haven't uh, I mean there is a very good German actor and uh, director who are planning to show it, but as usual with the theater, they need the money for it so right they're That's they're working on it they're working on it, but it was shown in uh, Dresden in a very good reading. It was shown another thing in another part of Germany in a very good reading great German actors. you want to to ask something or yeah there there was something um there was a, there's a A moment in the play where uh, he's been uh, the Nazis have already taken power and he's been fired from university the professor um, Mark uh, Erdman Erdman yeah. and he's been fired from university and um, and basically there's a moment where he's talking to his assistant and and you forgot to mention the assistant the lover of the wife okay this yeah well my, I didn't want to give was, anything away well, this was my first play there has to be a love triangle yeah yeah there's a love square almost <laughs> But it's uh, where, where is because square? there's the oh right right she's right. in the, love the, with the assistant, the assistant. right 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 okay. the assistant is in love with the assistant right. professor right. but anyway the assistant is having uh, Anna is having a conversation with Mark after he's been fired and she tells him uh, but you told them off right and there's this awkward moment and then where they realize that he didn't say anything he just picked up yeah. his stuff and left and it se- like I was wondering if that has anything to do with the idea that kind of the Jews took it. laying down is that some did and some didn't yeah uh, there were many courageous Jews including in Germany who didn't take it lying down uh, this is just him that's the way yeah. he is uh, this character I, I don't look the characters uh, the conflicts between them uh, all these characters have the good sides their bad sides uh, you can criticize some parts and not others and the audience uh, takes it for whatever it is and they can have different criticisms. And uh, admire different things in the characters than I do 
So in general, you don't you don't necessarily see it, or did or not necessarily approach writing it as a social commentary. You just kind of put it down as a drama. It's a drama, of course. I have my own ideas, but I try to refrain from sort of um, shoving an idea on the audience, which I think is one of the uh, faults or diseases of modern drama in the West. They sort of spoon feed you with certain ideas. In film I school, mean, they used to say in script lesson, never like don't feed with the spoon. Don't do it. It's so easy as a writer. Right. Right. It's very well, tempting. I know, but they still do that. They maybe they teach in film school, but when you see all these movies, <laughs> uh, they want to say a certain statement and then they're being hailed for being so politically correct or whatever. Right. Uh, they're against war and four peace. Well, gee, well, you don't say really they're <laughs> against uh, war and four peace. No, I'm just but no, really seriously. I mean, they uh, art today and that comes maybe to the muse, which you read yeah. uh, has become sort of uh, in many ways a equivalent almost to saying a statement, you know, and being considered a great artist because you're saying something that certain people like. But look, we're still debating today whether The Merchant of Venice is an anti-Semitic play or not, or pro-Jewish play. I happen to have my own views. Uh, there's no question Shakespeare was an anti-Semite, but he was a great playwright. And so he imbues this Merchant of Venice who wants to, his pound of flesh, he gives him one of the greatest speeches against anti-Semitism that you'll ever be able to hear. And this is Shakespeare. And uh, Because so the writer I, needs to identify with all the characters in the end of the day. It's not only that. I think it's very important to show all sides of the character. You know, we, we talked just before this program started about the play Meaning about Viktor Frankl, that I happen to be very critical, not about his psychological theory, because I am not a psychologist and I assume it seems like a very reasonable theory, but about his view of, uh, I would say, politics, or about uh, the West, or about Europe. And there was a woman in that play who was his patient 15 years after the war, was very critical. She sort of slowly realizes what it is that he's doing, or thinking, and she becomes very critical of him and very conflicted with him. And I remember one of the actresses that played her, and she played her beautifully, this was in Macedonia, in the city of Bitola, their state uh, theater. She depicted her wonderfully, arguing with him very forcefully. And after the premiere, my wife and I went there, we saw the premiere. There's the usual party, you know, that you meet up with uh, whatever in the bar there at the theater and uh, everybody's happy. And uh, she spoke good English. I didn't meet her before. She comes up to us and starts saying, how happy she is to play in the play, and how much she admires Viktor Frankl and what he says. Okay, to me, that was great news. That means I was able to write the play without taking sides. And I think it's very important. Let the audience work by themselves. Let them see the conflict and work things out. Things should be implied. They should not be explicit. I think that's the beauty of theater. Uh, that everything is implied. If it's explicit, it's boring. I find it boring. It sounds to me like you need to just strive to create real, authentic human interactions. Yeah, it's very tough. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 
He's he's a very good writer actually, Aton. Oh. So oh, really? shucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we both we met in film school and Oh, you also went to film school? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, he fin finished. He made yes. the mistake of finishing. Right. <laughs> um but uh so, today I work as a writer. Which here in Tel Aviv? Yeah, Tel Aviv yeah. University. Oh, okay. Um so yeah, we we struggled also with the same mm. issues. I uh, to me writing dialogues for example is the most difficult thing. So I'm envious a little bit that how how do you go about writing a, di a good dialogue? It is very difficult. Yeah, I work on it a lot. I mean, there's a play that believe it or not, I just finished writing yesterday. Okay. Oh wow. A play, my first play that I wrote more than 12 years ago. Actually, that's how I became a playwright. I read an article that my father had written, his last article. He must have been, I think, around 87. I thought it was his best article. 87? 87, yeah. He became famous as a historian at the age of 85 when he published his big magnum opus, The Origins of the Inquisition. Right. And a few years later, he wrote an article. It's called The Conversion of Don Samuel... Abarbanel. Don Samuel was the grandfather of the famous Isaac Abarbanel, who was the leader of Spain's Jewry during the expulsion from Spain in 1492. And in this article, he proved, first of all, that the grandfather, sometime in his life, midlife, he was also a leader of Spain's Jewry. It was a very famous family. Had converted to Catholicism all of a sudden. And then he conjectures, he doesn't, he can't prove it, he conjectures why he converted. It has to do, it's a great drama, it's conflicts, it's murder, it's conflicts between uh, him and the Jewish people, and the Jewish people among themselves, and the Jews against the Christians. Great, great drama. And I read this article, and this is towards the end of the time that I was writing this novel with the dialogues and everything, and I said, you know what? This should be a play. This can be a play. So I went ahead and wrote a play. It took me quite a while. I thought it was great. I thought it was, you know, it was the first play I wrote. And it was rejected by all theaters. And you know, reading it again after many years later, I see why. It's not well written enough. But that's how I became a playwright. And uh, now I got, about a year ago, I went back to this play and basically I rewrote it. Did, so. did your father read the, the first draft? He did read the first draft. And... Uh, you have comments like the, like the guy you gave the first uh, stories to? No, I did, that was not his... First of all, he was already fairly old by that time. Right. He read the first draft of the novel that I read and loved it very much. Uh -huh. Ita Malkay, okay, the satire about Israel's social and political life. That I, that I loved. The play, he appreciated it, but uh, I think... He commented and uh, made a lot of comments. I, I think he had better judgment about the play than I did, to be honest with you. But uh, but this play actually brought me to being afterwards a playwright because it was submitted also to uh, this Italian director, I translated to English, and he also rejected it. But a few months later, he calls me up when I was at home thinking about maybe some other theme for a play and says, ah, Ido, this is Leonardo Franchini, how are you? You know, typical Italian sort of uh, manner. How are you? Yes, yes, Ido, please, you know. <laughs> and uh, do you have maybe something for me for the Holocaust Memorial Day in Europe in a few months? And on the spot I said, yes, I do, because I was thinking about something. <laughs> and he said, I really need it, you know, in three months at the latest. 
So uh, I wrote it very quickly, this is a happy end. And I wrote it very quickly and he staged it. And uh, from there it came to Israel, to Tel Aviv, and from Tel Aviv it went to many places in the world, including New York, eventually to mm -hmm. off-Broadway, to two theaters. And, uh, Which makes you think, why, why should a writer invent um, plots and stories and characters where, when history is so filled with amazing yet untold stories that just, they're just sitting there waiting to be told by good writers? I don't know. You're right. You're absolutely right. I yeah? don't know why I mean, that's, that. <laughs> okay. We can agree on that. No, but even if you uh, use something in history, you always invent. Most of it is invented. I mean, like right. uh, what I wrote about uh, this uh, Don Samuel Bravanel, the play, most of it is invented. Even the play about Victor Frankl that I wrote, uh, most of it is my, virtually all of it is my invention. And the same thing about uh, Worlds in Collision, sort of the meetings between Einstein, two geniuses, Einstein and this crazy, supposedly crazy man called Immanuel Velikovsky. Yeah, it happened, but 90% of the play is an invention. Sure. I mean, but yeah, you're right. Shakespeare did the same thing. You know, he had these stories and none of his plays, the plot was always there or the gist of the plot was there and he expanded on it. When I when I just started, you know, it, and when I just started studying film, I, I always thought that that a good movie or play, for that matter, is is about the plot. But now, as I'm older and wiser, I, I realize that it, it, nobody like the plot is nice, but it's all, it's all about the characters and the relationship between between them, right? That, yeah, that's what important like to people. Yeah, you need to be able to relate. Um, but. I'm interested because you mentioned your father. I'm I'm interested to to hear maybe more about him and about what it was like growing up here in Israel. I also and, had a mother, by the way, and, and your who actually raised us more than the father. Okay, so tell, tell us, us about tell that. us about what it was like growing up here in Israel. Yeah. And by the way, you mentioned whether my father read the play, but he did manage to see uh, the play. This play that was staged in Israel. He was already very old, but he did go to the theater and he saw it. That's nice. Uh, he lived I, I was very sorry that my mother did not. Uh, yeah, he lived to the age of 102. Um, you're asking me what it was like growing up. First of all, we didn't know we'd be famous. So it was a regular childhood. Okay. Uh, but it was sort of a privileged childhood in many ways. Uh, privileged, also, first of all, because we grew up when it was still in Jerusalem, there were no cars. We played in the streets. It was all the neighborhood, the kids and everything. Uh, and also, we didn't realize that, but we were well off compared to the rest of the neighborhood, to our, to our neighbors, to our friends. Many Holocaust survivors, or children of Holocaust survivors, the friends were. Uh, Hardworking people. And my father was also very hardworking, but he was the editor of the Hebrew Encyclopedia. That's like the Britannica in Hebrew, and certainly concentrated in Hebrew themes. And uh, he was the chief editor of the Encyclopedia, and extremely well paid by those uh, standards of those days. He might have gotten maybe the highest salary of any salaried person in Israel at the time. And uh, I remember, you know, we were one of the few families or maybe the only family in the street that had a phone. So neighbors used to come all the time to make phone calls to whatever government offices or whatever. Uh, so it was, a, it was a very enjoyable childhood uh, from what I remember. That's how I recall it. 
You also mm-hmm. moved to America at a certain point. A certain point we moved to America. My father uh, was not a professor here at university. He wanted to continue his researches in history, and he just couldn't do it with all the work that he had as the editor of the encyclopedia. And politics were also involved, right? Yeah. yeah well, academia. Then probably less than now. But uh, I think right. now politics in the West is just outrageous the way the control that... Uh, I would say the left or the liberal elements have over the humanities. Uh, even then, at that time, it was not that great. Not and that just strong. for the record, your father was a right winger. He was a well-known revisionist. He was very active. He headed the revisionist party in America during the World War II, and the whole campaign for the creation of the state of Israel in and America. Worked with Jabotinsky at a certain point. He convinced Jabotinsky to move his operation from uh, London to New York. He said, you have nothing more to do in England. The country that will determine the fate of the Zionist project is America, and that's where you have to to move. And so they did that in 1940. And uh, shortly afterwards, Jabotinsky died, and eventually my father took over the whole operation there and uh, created a massive, uh, I would say, you want to call it a propaganda campaign or whatever, massive public relations campaign, a meeting with the... all sorts of senators, congressmen, uh, people in the administration, and uh, not only him, of course, his, uh, the people who worked with him as well. And uh, uh, within a few years, you know, Zionism was almost, but hardly known. It was known in America, but it was not a great movement. It became a tremendous movement, and he had the support of virtually the entire Congress. for the idea of creating a Jewish state, and that was on the plank of the Republicans and then the Democrats. Anyway, that, that's what he did. So he came back to Israel, and there was no way he would be able to teach in the Hebrew University in Israel. It just it was not did he Did he always see his time in the States as temporary? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. He and, went. And, and, uh, but the childhood, like, and your parents and the relationship with them, like, there was the warmth in the house and... And love and stuff like that, you know, the stuff. Well, I think if you read Yoni's letter, you can understand that very clearly, that it was tremendous love, of course. I mean, the, uh, you didn't the see your father much, though. No, no, we saw him an awful lot. He worked a lot from home. Uh-huh. Um, But you said your mother raised you mainly. Well, that's what mothers do. Yeah, at that time, you know, she didn't work. She was a Today housekeeper. Today, it's taboo to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I should have said that's what mothers did. I hope <laughs> I hope this won't be the last interview I'll ever have. Okay. And But no, actually, she was always very sorry that she did not have her own profession. She was one of the original feminists, in a sense, I would say. And you grew up in Jerusalem. We grew up in Jerusalem, but then as you, my father moved to have a university position to be able to continue his researches uh, on the origins of the Inquisition, what brought about the Inquisition, mm-hmm. because it was totally misunderstood for 500 years. And how much would you say your father influenced your, your philosophy, your, the way you see the world, if at all? Yeah, yeah, of course, he influenced uh, later in life. Uh, Why? Do you rebel at the you're, beginning? You're too young to understand, and you don't really talk too much about these things. Except that knowing that communism was bad, I mean, there was nothing else really that I... <laughs> uh, we didn't have these uh, political uh, or ideological talks in the house that just didn't, didn't happen. We had a regular childhood, you know, and uh, 
you're reprimanded for things that you do badly and you're complimented, which was most of the time were these great sons and nothing we could do was bad. Both my mother and father always, uh, you know, thought very highly of us and uh, whatever. Uh, but uh, later in life, you know, in your 20s, 30s and 40s, you learn that there is a man here who's uh, in many ways, I would say, uh, an intellectual giant, and uh, there's a lot to learn from him. I wonder if um, there's, you know, you mentioned that you didn't know you were going to be famous, and you guys were brought to uh, to a certain. I always level. knew. I always knew Yoni would be famous. There was ah, no, really? There was no doubt in my mind. Why? Yes. He was a remarkable person. Uh, I always knew he would be something outstanding. I never knew what exactly. But there was something in him that uh, sort of drew you and drew other people toward him. Charisma. And Whatever you want to call it. Just an outstanding personality. And uh, that there was no doubt, I think, in anybody's mind, including my parents, that there was a great future ahead of him. Nobody thought about Bibi, but uh, uh, of course we were wrong. Uh, maybe you only thought that about Bibi. But uh, Yoni was, of course, maybe because he was the oldest brother. But there's a lot in common in the three of you. In the end of the day, like uh, I, I, I feel, I feel you're, you're the three of you are thinkers. You come from the same roots of of in intellectual life and driven, and, yeah, and yeah. driven and pol pol the politics and, and it's there's something in common. I feel. But but what I wanted to ask was eventually the family was brought to fame. I mean, today, everybody in the world knows, not everybody in the world, but most people in the world know the name Netanyahu. And um, it brings they, with they, it... They even know how to spell it, which is also amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Although, turns out the French add an, a, a U, a, uh, an extra... A, a, Instead of a Y, they put an I, I think. Yeah, there's an extra letter there at the end. Maybe. That's... An X That's somewhere the in the middle. That's the French, yeah. What did they? <laughs> but um, but eventually, uh, so you, the family did become well known, and it comes a, with with a certain price. I feel we had on the show uh, your brother's biographist, um, biographer, yeah, Anshel yeah. Feffel, who wrote you know something that, I mean, his book is not is not very complimenting of the family i was uh, really an israeli reporter not complimentary <laughs> yeah. interesting report. i'm amazed, I'm amazed yes. reporter. Okay. It, was, it, it felt i mean it was actually hard for me to read the first couple of pages because it felt that biased it, it felt completely unobjective in the way he described your father and and i wonder if well one, he, he you, wants to have a great future as a reporter he can't yeah. he can't kill himself yeah, right? yeah. So he's not committing suicide for god's <laughs> sake but I wonder one if you encounter it on a uh, if you or if you kind of just say I'm not going to even uh, confront those things like if you open if you read that that book for example if you you know uh, read the the coverage of of your brother and of your family and two how it affects you look I, no I didn't read that book and uh, it's, it's like all these uh, families you know the Kennedys do they read about uh, you don't read about these things it's uh, what does he know more about my family than me. What, what sense is there for me to read his book? And what's true there and what's false there, who knows? I have no idea. I don't intend to go into it. But look, you, you make, uh, first of all, uh, I, as I said, I didn't grow up in this famous family, and so I had a normal childhood like anybody else, and it doesn't affect me at all one way or another in terms of what I want to do. It affects me in the sense that I need to maybe address some issues, uh, like 
you know, writing the book about Yoni because things that were said are simply wrong. Or even, you know, appearing on TV a few weeks ago, which I never do, but I felt it was so outrageous what they were saying about my family, about my brother. During the elections. Before the elections, I felt that this is ridiculous, you know, what the, that he sold, uh, made a profit uh, in selling the uh, security of Israel for that. I mean, outrageous lies. Yeah, they called him <coughs> a traitor, basically, yeah, and the left. I think not even basically. I think, I think they actually used that word. Uh, it was just sheer lies. I mean, I didn't even call him or speak to him about it. I mean, I just went on TV and appeared because I don't need to speak to him to know that this is all lies. But that's very rare. I hardly do that. And I have my own life and my own career. And uh, You work I as def- a doctor? Sometimes. Not really. Morally, you more now more as a player. Well, okay. yeah, I do. I, look, I always work. I always work part-time as a radiologist. That's how I got into radiology. Right. I was, uh, you know, I started writing in medical school, as I mentioned here. And I got to like it. I think, you know, this is really intellectually challenging. It's, to me, more challenging than medicine. But what will I do? You know, I'll, I'll be a doctor. I'll be devoting my time. It's very hard work. How will I be able to write? And when I was an intern in one of the big hospitals in the Tel Aviv area, eh, we used to go to radiology to, you know, discuss cases, CTs, x-rays or whatever. And there was a, one of the radiologists there had been away for a whole month. And he just came back. And someone told me, you know where he was? He was in Holland. In Holland, in one month, he makes more money than the rest of the year he does in Israel. I said, ah, here's the perfect solution. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be, I'll be a radiologist, work abroad for one month a year, and then I'll also be back in Israel, but not as a radiologist, not as a doctor, but I'll be writing. That's and that's nice. And that's exactly what I did. That's great. Uh, I, en- I ended up uh, doing my residency in America, and ever since then, I've been working only part-time as a physician, shuttling back and forth to America, not now anymore, but in past years and devoting most of my time to writing. So what is my career? I think it's more of a writer than a radiologist. That's incredible. But I imagine working here in the medical uh, field is kind of a nightmare. I don't know, because once again, the only work I do here... No, baby, you started out, you didn't start out working here as a doctor? I did my medical school here. I did one year of residency here, and then I ah, continued in America. And here, yeah, I volunteered in Hadassah Hospital for, ah, okay, uh, for some time, but... Uh, what I do here is just people bring me their things to interpret friends yeah, or yeah. some people f- learn about me. The rest of the time uh, I do, if I do work here in my house, it's doing teleradiology for America. Hmm. Once again, to devote as little time as possible to radiology and as much time as possible to writing because I find writing very hard, including dialogues, very enjoyable, but takes an awfully long time right. to, in order to do it good. I must say that uh, I saw... well, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I'm here to make worse mistakes um, in English. But I, I must say I saw, I saw that interview you mentioned um, uh, a week or two weeks before the, the last elections, and I thought to myself that it was by far the best uh, talk and interview uh, in defense of uh, the prime minister among all the people, all the politicians, all the Likud members, mm-hmm. everybody who talked, uh, it was because it looked, you really talked from, from the heart. So, so what led you there? And, and it, as you said, it's really rare that you uh, come to the... Well, you know, they came up with this outrageous lie and I felt offended. And I also was uh, afraid that the lie would catch. And uh, 
I was offered to appear. I sent some article to various people, including an editor in one of the TV channels, and he said, do you want to appear about it? And I said, you know what, under certain conditions, yes. So I appeared not knowing that they would not let me finish a sentence, but nevertheless, it came out good in the end. Yeah, it was very impressing. And I, I just want to ask, because you mentioned that grief led you to be a writer, and we're re- approaching uh, Memorial Day here in Israel. So, I, you know, it, isn't it interesting how people deal with grief? Uh, some people can become mad with, with grief. Some people go and work, some people go to art. And I just, you know, I, I, it, it is, and some people might go to politics. I, when I often think about uh, the prime minister, I think, I wonder to myself, what's the role of grief uh, in his uh, path? Um, so I, I wonder if you think still about uh, your brother as you create, and does it still... help you with the grief yeah i'm i'm this is the first time i'm thinking about what you're saying that grief leads one to be a writer i never thought about it that way and it it helps maybe maybe you're right certainly sadness (laughs) leads you to be a writer that's that's for sure um i look of course i think about yoni you cannot help i think anybody who's lost a brother uh, sort of stays with them all the time I cannot say that this is the stimulating force. It, it brought me to think about being a writer when I had this crisis, I guess, in my life at the age of 24. But I cannot say that this is the driving force of me uh, wanting to write. Um, that just wouldn't be true. I think I have something to say about many things. I think, you know, I sort of fell in love with theater after watching. This Leonardo Fanchini, okay, the same Italian okay, <laughs> who put on my play, and that's when the whole thing started. Uh, I wanted to be in the rehearsals. I'm the playwright, and no, he didn't want me to be in any rehearsal. He's one of those directors that does not want any any playwright in his rehearsals. But he said, you know what, for the first time, fine. So I stopped by in Italy on my way back from America to Israel, you know, doing work, radiology work. And uh, we go to this, uh, in the middle of winter, to this very small room, sort of a black box studio. And I sit there, and all of a sudden I see these people get up and start saying my lines in Italian, which sounds even better. And you go crazy because, you know, this is like something that was virtual on the paper and in your mind all of a sudden comes to life. And I think from that moment on, I was hooked to, at least for now, uh, just working in theater. But... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No. I just uh, be- we have to go soon, but uh, there, because we don't get to have many um, graduates of uh, Sayyid Matkal here, so I was wondering before we go if you can if there's like the craziest story that happened to you during your service that you can share with us. In Sayyid Matkal, it was so many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, First of all, even though it was many years ago, you can't really talk about what you did in right. Seyrat Matkal. That's uh, something like I, I read... One of the crazy stories is the, the fact, maybe I don't know if it's crazy or not, but, uh, you know, Yoni was also my commander in the army for most of my service there. The not, direct... Not the uh, direct commander, one level up. He was okay. the commander one year of the uh, of my, uh, what would you call an English company, I guess, 
Palga, and then afterwards he was the deputy commander of the unit. And in Israel, you're, you know, your two brothers are not, are not allowed to be in the same operation. That's the army rules. Somehow he managed to <laughs> take me to an operation that he commanded, which was a known operation. This was the kidnapping of Syrian officers in Lebanon in order to exchange them for Israeli pilots that were languishing in the jail in Syria. And uh, I could see what a real battle commander is like during that operation. And you can see he was really an amazing commander of military operations. Charged yeah. first and led? That's without question, but he was cool-headed. That's what I, I, I was uh -huh. not there at the beginning. We were sort of at a force, a side force that sort of came to the center, sorry, after a, a few minutes. But you could see, you know, there's still shots ringing around. You could see how clear-headed he was. He was walking around, giving orders, doing this, doing that. Uh, very no-nonsense. Uh, you immediately felt calm after you... I mean, it was very tense. This was the first time I was in actually in battle. And all of a sudden, uh, he relieved your, uh, your tenseness. He just, you, all of a sudden, you became calm, like he was. Uh, so that's one incident I can tell about Sayyid Matkan. Nothing, not a lot more, by the way. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, so your plays, uh, where are they currently showing? And if someone is interesting, interested in showing one of your plays, what can he do? Uh, well, actually, tomorrow there's going to be a premiere of the meaning of the play about Viktor Frankl in Kishinev in uh, Moldova by a very good director, or actually his very good theater. He's not the director. He appointed one of his uh, disciples. Uh, but the head of the theater is Yuri Harmelin, great Jew, wonderful Jew. And uh, it's a great theater. And uh, so I'm, I'll be seeing the play in a few months uh, in a festival that they have there. And they also did a happy end. So it's, it's uh, the plays are showing in various in countries. Italy. You told me? In Italy, there was just a recently a premiere of uh, The Muse, a comedy, sort of a, a satire about current arts, okay, arts in the general sense. And it takes a brave director, by the way, to uh, decide to do that play because it's so politically incorrect. Right. Uh, but There's a prostitute there. So No, not because of that. Ah, okay. Because of what he says, what it says or laughs about art. So, so for some reason, we can laugh about everything. Politicians, businessmen, you name it, but not about ourselves. Um, also, there's a prostitute. There's also a prostitute there, absolutely. <laughs> Although they change it to a sort of a pole dancer. Okay. Oh, so. which is also nowadays. Mo much more right. refined. <laughs> yeah, much more refined. Anyway, no, they actually did a great job. I enjoyed it very much. A great director and great actors. But if someone in America, for example, wants to in America, well, direct the, one of your plays, how can they do that? How well, can they reach you? Well, they can reach me by uh, writing me uh, my email. It's my... Uh, my name, Ido. Well, I, I don't want to give it because I'll okay. be getting letters from who knows okay. where. But they, they can look at the internet. And actually, the play A Happy End was published by Play Scripts in America. So if people want to do it, they are doing that play in some places in America. They can just contact Play Scripts. Uh, but you're right. I probably have to get an internet site and everything and from Definitely. other places as well. But they're being shown in various countries in the world, whether in Russia and different places. Just now shown in St. Petersburg. And uh, I was just now in St. Petersburg at a big, one of the big theaters, and they're interested in my plays. 
and uh, in various countries, mostly in Eastern Europe, I would say the former Soviet bloc more than the West. Interesting. Because in the West, it's politically, I guess, not so <laughs> easy to show a play by someone called Netanyahu. Right. So that maybe right, does right, affect right. me. Or by any Israeli, by the way, not just a Netanyahu. Takes courage for a theater yeah. to show. Yeah. It's not, yeah, e yeah. not easy nowadays in the West. Yeah. The burden we all carry. But um, people can actually uh, purchase hard copies of the uh, plays? Of uh, a happy end, uh, yeah. If it's in America, they purchase a hard copy of a happy end. The other plays, they just need to uh, contact. contact me. I will have an internet site very soon, and uh, they, they'll have an email address there and other uh, means of communicating and uh, seeing my plays and uh, putting them up. But I tell Great. you, the, the plays are being shown. I never bothered trying to distribute them. They're just word of mouth. Yeah. One director tells another, and that's how it... I'm so sorry. if you guys happen Great. to be in an area in which one of the plays is, uh, you guys can look it up, uh, we strongly recommend Idon Netanyahu's plays. There's a happy end. There's muse. There's meaning. And there's Worlds in Collision, the play Worlds. about uh, the meetings between Einstein and Velikovsky. Velikovsky. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Jewish Journal, uh, if you, you've heard of them, they're a... I was interviewed by, by them by at Daniel, one time. Ah, that's by right, Daniel by Barron. Daniel Barron. Yes. So the Jewish Journal, guys, is a uh, website, Jewish News, uh, jewishjournal.com. They've got great columns, great podcasts. podcasts. Check them out, jewishjournal.com. And we save donations, so please go to twinjb.com slash donate and help us out because we do it on our free time. And that is it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for having me. Dr. Netanyahu. Bye, Bye, guys. Bye.